0: good Good morning. We're in a teaching series this morning titled People of God. And just a reminder, this is a framework for us as modern day believers to remember what the Lord did for his people in the book of Exodus so that we can remember what he's done for us and who he is for us. And so this is applicable to us in this room. Even you hear Exodus, you hear the old books of the Bible. Sometimes it's just like checkout, not relevant, but I promise you this morning it is. But Again, my name is Justin, and Steve so set me up to to be introduced. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and so if I haven't met you before, I want to say welcome, glad that you're here, and I just want to encourage you. You're in a great place this morning. God's got a lot to share through his word this morning, so if you need a Bible, we do have a couple Bibles in the back of the room. Feel free to grab one. It's our gift to you, but we're going to turn to Exodus 7 today, so you can go ahead and turn there if you brought your Bible with you. And as you're turning, I wanna have a a question that everybody answers, this is a survey. How many of you have ever had the pleasure of owning Ikea furniture? All right, now, this is the great divide. How many of you have ever put it together? Yep. Well, for those of you who don't know what, what I'm talking about, there's plenty of different options over at Ikea. You've got furniture, you've got bookshelves, you've got all sorts of bookcases, cabinets, you can get mattresses, you can get pillows. I found for about $1.50, you can get really tiny fake plants that I thought were going to be bigger, and then they show up, and they're, they're pretty small, but outside of really weird names for their products, like Barfa and Trotton, Screwby, Bagaboo, those were just the ones that I actually thought I could pronounce, the biggest thing Ikea is known for, outside of Swedish meatballs, is some assembly required, right, and so... When you go to the big blue box store over there off I-69 and Fishers, if you've never been, it's quite the experience. You walk in and they've got all the stuff laid out in different sections for your home. So from kitchen to office or bed space or even kids area, you navigate through. You see these products put together over on the shelves and then you've got to figure out what you're going to do with it. Right. You write down the if you can remember the name. Good for you, but you gotta write down the item number. You gotta navigate through the store to the checkout area where you'll find cardboard boxes with numbers on them labeled, you gotta take them home, and it's not assembled. And so when you get home, that's when the real fun begins. And as you can see, you lay everything out, you take open all the the pieces and parts, lay it out on the floor in front of you with all the dowel rods and screws and all of the things, and then you find some of the best printed instructions you've ever seen in your life. Pictures only, and so the process is this. You take step one and step two, this piece and this piece, line them up. Step three, step four, this piece and this piece. You gotta make sure all the little dots match the photo, right? So you have the orientation correct. And if you're faithful to follow the process, hopefully, at the end, you get the spitting image of the product you saw on display at Ikea that inspired you to buy it in the first place. Now, we recently here in the office replaced some aging cabinetry with Ikea cabinets. And so the interesting thing is Tiffany, our worship leader, she helped, and this was the last one that we had put together out of probably six or seven different pieces of furniture. And we opened it and realized right out of the gate, we had one piece that was the wrong piece. And so we had two of the same sides and needed the opposing wall. And so if you've ever had this happen to you, it's pretty frustrating. You can't just call Ikea. They won't just send you the replacement piece. You actually have to go to the store that you bought it at. You can't go to a different store. I learned this in Ohio the hard way once. And you've got to bring your receipt. You've got to go wait in the return line. I spent an hour and 15 minutes in this line behind one person to exchange one piece. They won't even let you go and get the piece. They've gotta go get it for you, bring it to you, send you on your way, and you hope that you don't find another missing piece as you continue on with the process, right? It happened again. They sent me back with the exact same piece that I brought in to exchange, and so three different trips to try and get this last cabinet together, and so the warning is, make sure that you've got all the pieces and parts in place so you can get to the finished product. And just like this journey with Ikea furniture, we're gonna to see today that there's always a journey that the Lord takes us through. There's always a next step before we get to the finished product. He promises it could be amazing, but there's always a journey. And so really, this is essentially the story that we're gonna dive into today in the book of Exodus. We're gonna see that God is crafting a detailed instruction manual from Moses. And if he follows it step by step, God promises that the result is gonna be epic. It's just going to be quite a process to get there. Well, before we begin with the story today, I want to make sure that we pray that the Lord would reveal himself to us through scripture, that we would hear the word of the Lord, and that we would realize the call that he's calling us to greater as we are disciple makers for Christ. So let's pray together this morning. Lord, we want to invite you into our lives. It's so easy for us to become routine and coming here week in and week out. And it's easy to not actually let the word of God touch our hearts. And so we want to be soft-hearted to what it is that you have for us, Lord. So Holy Spirit, we invite you in and ask that you would speak through your word this morning. That you would teach us to be more like Christ. In the holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as a church, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we've been studying Exodus since the beginning of February. And I just want to catch you up quickly so you're up to speed. Today, we're going to find Moses, who's one of the main characters in the book of Exodus. He's with his brother Aaron, and they are confronting Pharaoh, who's the leader of Egypt. And so, the Israelites, or the people of God in this story, they're under slavery under the nation of Egypt. And so, Moses is being called by God to go to them and say, Hey, let God's people go so they can go and worship him. And back in chapter five, we find Pharaoh, who's the antagonist of these specific chapters. He says specifically, Who is your God? I don't know this God. And he refuses their request. But Moses, this is interesting, he's in a growing relationship with the Lord in these first few chapters of Exodus. And so he's learning to hear God's voice, learning this process of trusting him. But he's promised by God that it's all going to work out, that the slavery would end, and the people of God would be freed from their oppression. He just has to be obedient and faithful to what the Lord has instructed. After the first encounter that he had with Pharaoh back in chapter 5, it went so poorly that you see Moses is nervous to go back again, and he's questioning God, saying, Why'd you choose me? I'm not a great speaker. Why'd you choose me? And so we see, even though Moses isn't the shiniest, God's still choosing to use him. And so this catches us up where we'll start today in chapter 7, verse 5. And so as you're turning in your Bible, I just want to point out real quick some applications that I think we'll find similar for where we're at in our lives and our journey of faith and what we see in the Israelites up to this point. And so first is the people of Israel were hopeless in slavery under Egyptian rule. We live in a world that is hopeless under the slavery to sin without the sacrifice of Jesus through our faith in him. Now the Lord had big plans for Israel And through Jesus, he also has plans for us as his chosen people. The Lord chose to use Moses as a voice for Israel. And likewise, all of us who have had an encounter with the Lord were chosen to be a voice for Jesus and to share the truth of Christ as his disciples. And so we're going to pick up today, chapter 7, verse 5. It'll be on the screen. And we're going to see the Lord. He really sets the stage for what's about to happen. Let's read together. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Now, we have a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to move quick as we're going to be covering nine out of ten plagues over Egypt. And so hopefully this doesn't just fall void on you. I know the story. Hopefully we don't take that position because there's a lot here that even I learned after spending most of my adult life following Christ and so we're not going to be able to exclusively cover every detail. We're going to keep moving, but let's jump to verse 10 where God begins to lay out his instructions. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one drew his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So, where this isn't an official plague, this is the first miracle in which it tees off this massive show of power that's going to be on display through the rest of the book of Exodus. So, something to note that is repeated over and over in these next few chapters is Moses and Aaron are obedient to follow what the Lord instructed them to go and do. Now, back to verse. Five. Aaron puts his staff down, it turns into a snake. But these next characters are really important. The magicians, according to their secret arts, or in some translations, it references occult practices, they're able to do this same miracle or same magic. So notice in verse 12 though, where Aaron's staff ends up eating all the other staffs, all the other snakes. So have you ever heard this phrase? Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Come on. No, you can't. Yes, I can't. See, you know the story. Well, this is what the Lord is doing here. You say, he's saying, you think you have power. You think you have control. You have access to all this magic. Well, I'm bigger, and I rule over all of these tiny little gods that you claim to serve. Yet repeatedly, as we're going to read today, Satan gave Pharaoh... A reason to doubt God's great power, and Pharaoh leans into this doubt and he hardens his heart. Now, as Paul Mumal had mentioned last week, the culture in this time, the Egyptians, they worshipped many gods. They were actively involved and engaged in a lot of different idol worship. And so, this is alluding to very real spiritual powers that we as modern day believers would say is consistent with what we know of the battle, not against flesh and blood, that we see in Scripture. And so these gods, they ruled over every aspect of the Egyptians' lives. So this setup for a display of might that's going to unfold really is God versus God's blow versus blow. Think of one opponent in the octagon just getting pummeled by the other. God's about to show his mighty hands as we read on in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, that they may worship in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed to blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. And so Moses and Aaron, they follow through and the waters and the river and the surrounding areas, it all turns to blood. Now, something to notice here, we read, by this you will know that I am the Lord. God wants everyone to know in this story that he is the one True God, there is no other like him. And so this first plague, the Nile being turned to blood, was directed against the numerous Egyptian river deities. According to the Enduring Word commentary, which I highly recommend, it's enduringword.com, if you want to write that down. It's a great resource that sheds some light to the bigger story that's playing behind the scenes here. But the Egyptian god Kanum was said to be the guardian of the Nile, and this showed that he was unable to protect his territory. In fact, there's a significant mention of something that is found in a papyrus found by archeological teams from this general period of Egypt. It's known as the Apur papyrus, and it actually says that the Nile was blood and undrinkable. And so I find this really interesting that we find corroboration from this document and what we read in the Bible. And in some translations, verse 21 actually says blood was everywhere in Egypt. And so to give you a little bit of context of time, each plague lasted a period of a week or more. And so this wasn't just a couple hours. This wasn't just a day or so. This really hit them hard as they lived their natural lifestyle and rhythm. Now in the following verses, Pharaoh's magicians, they perform a similar miracle by digging up some water from the ground and turning it into blood, but they couldn't fix the Nile problem. They didn't have this kind of power. They could only mimic what the Lord was doing and have this little micro event happen as the Lord did this massive miracle. Scripture goes on to say that Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he would not listen. So the enemy further gave false confidence to Pharaoh that he had access to this similar power And so this takes us to our second plague. In chapter 8, we read Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. I find this interesting, too. The Egyptian goddess Heket was often imagined with the head of a frog, and she was their goddess of fertility. And so, really, right out of the gate, this is a one-two punch by the Lord to the Egyptian deities, saying, first your precious life-giving water, gone. Now your fertility, God. And although there seems to be this same satanic power conjuring up a cheap counterfeit to what the Lord was doing, They, again, couldn't fix the problem. They could only do a a small counterfeit of it. So we read on in verse 8. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But we see in verse 12, Moses asks the Lord to take away the frogs, and the Lord honors Moses' request. But again, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. So I imagine the age old scene that we've seen in movies or stories where you've got someone at the end of their rope, right? Maybe they're facing death or some tragedy and they cry out to the Lord like, Lord, if you save me, I'll serve you forever. And then right when they're out of their predicament, they go right back to living the same way that they lived before. So Pharaoh, he's digging in his heels at this point. He doesn't want to surrender control. And I'm willing to say based on scripture, this is a spiritual issue. And this is what I mean. The unwillingness to see what was right in front of him and the manipulation of the enemy to distort the truth. It's nothing new. We see this playing out in so many areas in our culture now, don't we? But I want to ask you this. Like Moses, who was learning the Lord's voice and to trust his direction in the process, how often in your life, Do you seek the Lord's direction in your life and follow through in obedience? Or like we see in Pharaoh, are there areas in your life that you're resistant to what God has called you to? Are you trying to control your situation or trusting in the Lord? Let's continue in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. Now, if you're reading this like me, you're thinking gnats. I think fruit flies. They're just annoying, right? Or if you're ever running or outside and you run into those weird little nests of gnats and you just kind of get in the way, you just think they're just causing a ruckus. But really, the, according to Net Bible, the Greek word for gnats would include variations of gnats, ticks, fleas, or mosquitoes. And so given the proximity to the Nile, mosquitoes would be common already, but think massive swarms. That's a lot, of, a lot of bites, a lot of itching going on. But the King James translates in verse 17 and calls it lice. And so think about lice for a second. The Egyptians were extremely concerned about cleanliness and their idol worship, so this would have made it impossible for them to worship. But if you've ever had lice, it's a chore to get rid of. And so I can share from experience My family went through this before, and it's quite the the fun thing to have to bag up all the stuffies for the kids, put them in trash bags, put them out in the garage, and we actually discovered we had lice, when we had some house guests staying in our home. And so they quickly checked out, and at the end of the day, you know, we made it through. It was quite the fun experience, but an outbreak of lice for the Egyptians, it would have made them unable to take part not only in idol worship, but in a lot of functions of their life, including animal sacrifices as every beast and man was affected. And things take an interesting turn here in verse 18. But when the Egyptians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. So from here on out, the magicians aren't able to fix or mimic the power of the Lord. It's important to note their stance. They're basically throwing in the towel, saying, This is the finger of God, a true higher power. But Pharaoh continues to dig his heels in further, and he hardens his heart. Now comes the fourth plague in verse 21. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen. Goshen, if you remember, is the land that Joshua was able to, or sorry, Joseph was able to procure for the Israelites in which they had set apart this really fertile land while they were in captivity. And he says, the land of Goshen where my people live, no swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. So God wants to make it clear to everyone he's in control. I have the power over all these puny gods and I have chosen the Israelites as my people. Now I'm gonna prove it for all to see, is they're gonna be set apart and untouched by these coming plagues. So in verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God. And so the Lord stops the plagues days later in verse 32. But this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart. It would not let the people go. You see this pattern here, right? The unwavering to surrender over and over again. So again, I ask for us today, are there areas in our lives that we're grasping at control and not trusting the Lord in full obedience? Because here's the reality. Even as believers in Christ today, this can happen to us too. We see a warning for believers of Jesus in Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 26, that says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice for sin. No sacrifice for sin is left. We're warned not to ignore the Holy Spirit's power of conviction in our lives. The warning here is don't become a Pharaoh. Don't ignore what God is calling you to. And now we see God sending another very clear message in chapter 9 with the fifth plague, setting the Israelites apart, striking a heavy blow to the livelihood of the Egyptians by killing off all livestock and animals all over Egypt, but not for the Israelites. And so we see this display of God's favor at hand here. And in verses 8 through 10, the Lord sends boils and sores to the Egyptians in the next plague. And in verse 12, we see a very distinct change in the way things are worded from here on out. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So here for the first time, we see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. The Lord stated that this would happen back in Exodus 4.21. But how did we get to this point? Six times before now, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And if you're a parent in the room, it's almost like God's saying, fine. Have it your way. I've warned you this won't end well, but I'm giving you over to yourself. And we see this also mirrored in Romans 1 as the Lord gives us over at times to the sin in our hearts if we refuse Him. R. Alan Cole puts it this way Previously, Pharaoh has hardened his own heart. And so the moral would be that God hardens those who harden themselves. We see God consistently warning Pharaoh. As we read on in chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says Let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know there it is again that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off of the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Yet you still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. So the Lord's saying to Pharaoh, I've let you survive for a reason. I could end you in an instant, but... I want the earth to know my great power and I'm going to use you to tell the story. Look at these statements again. That you may know there is none like me in all the earth. And so we see a character of God in this that we serve a power, powerful God that shows us favor to his people but also is patient and loving and graceful and gives us lots of opportunities to respond to his great love. Now with the seventh plague, We see in verse 23, when Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the earth. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Now this plague is a devastating one. This isn't just light sleet, but a powerful crippling hail that damages everything from crops to homes. And so I have some pictures. This is interesting. This past week, my parents, they sent me a photo on Tuesday night that they woke up from some of the storms that rolled in. And they heard this huge hail hitting the house and hitting their cars. And so this is golf ball-sized hail. And thunderstorms are totally normal in February, right? But imagine this. This gives, I think, a bigger picture of what this could have been. Back in 2020, some of the largest hail ever recorded in our history hit the country of Libya. And I mean, you see those windshields. Could you imagine this hitting your home, hitting whatever it is that you had outside of your, your house? But in verse 27, we see Pharaoh promises to let them go. And when the plague lifts, he's right back to changing his mind and holding on yet again. Now in chapter 10, the Lord sends locusts to cover everything and eat everything that was left, all the plants. And so we're going to read in chapter 10, verse 5, where it says, They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. Think about this visual. They will cover so that no one can see the land. I imagine our cicadas that we so come to love here in Indiana, everywhere, crawling on everything. I know my kids love when they have their little shells and leave them behind to play with those, but imagine so many cicadas that you couldn't see the ground on which they're crawling. Big, huge bugs. It's similar to what's happening here. Let's jump ahead to chapter 10, verse 7. Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? And so everyone's getting the message, but Pharaoh, do you not know that Egypt is ruined? Everything is destroyed. How much worse can it get? And Pharaoh appears to repent in verse 16. And then once again, the crisis is averted. And it seems he's more than content with avoiding the consequence than changing his heart. Now, the ninth plague in verse 21, and this is huge. The Lord sends multiple days of darkness over Egypt, yet the Israelites have light. So this not only would have been terrifying for the Egyptians who put so much value in the rising and setting of the sun, the life and death cycle of Egypt, but this would have been a very personal attack on Pharaoh himself who referred to him as the son of Ra to put himself equal with the gods. And so... For many of you, maybe your first exposure to Ra was the movie Stargate. I remember seeing it growing up, but Ra was actually the sun god, and in the Egyptian culture was seen as the creator of all other gods and all humanity. And so we see a mighty show of power yet again by our God, bringing them absolute darkness for days on end. So in verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Now, we're going to stop here today, even though the beginning of chapter 11 sets up the 10th and final plague. And so for everyone on the edge of your seat, you'll just have to come back next week to hear how it all ends. But next week, we get a special treat because we actually get to hear from Dr. Cindy Parker. She's going to be here for our next Going Deeper event next Sunday night here at the Noblesville campus. But she'll be here with us on Sunday morning to talk about the 10th plague. And then next Sunday evening, I want to invite everyone to come out. She's going to be talking about the Passover from Jesus' perspective, and I can say she was here with us a few years ago, and so she's got really, really significant insight into what deeper means when it comes to the Passover. You won't want to miss it. I hope you make plans to be here, and I really hope that our time today kind of sets the stage for all of us to hear this epic conclusion and how God sets us, even now, apart as his people. But everything in this story today that we've covered points to two things that I want us to remember as the writer intended. First, our God is greater than anyone and anything else that we could face. And he's not only our creator, but he's our savior because he's given us the gift of Jesus. And so if you're not yet a follower of Christ in this room and you're just checking things out, asking questions, hear me on this. I'm not here to convince you. You might think that this is a children's story, but we believe that Jesus affirms this story and these events as he recognizes the teachings of Moses himself. We know that Jesus walked this earth and in his own words, he's recorded firsthand as saying in John 14, six, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And so God, our Father, our Creator, He's the author of this story in Exodus. And Jesus completes what we never could on our own because of what He accomplished for us as the final sacrifice on the cross. So this morning, if you want to know more about Jesus, or you've been on the fence and you want to take a step to trusting the Lord and stepping forward to knowing Him today, I'd love to talk with you after the service. I'll be available up front to pray with you. But hear me, he has a power that we don't, to do a work in your life and nothing, no amount of baggage or history is too impossible for him to redeem. And as followers of Christ this morning, we serve a God that I feel like is put to rest, especially in the story, the debate of who is greater. No miracle is too small for him. No battle or thing that we face is too big for him to overcome. We worship him when we gather together weekly because of our gratitude for what he's accomplished for us on the cross. And so we see throughout the story his mercy, his grace, his favor. But here's the second thing that really stands out from the story we can harden ourselves to what God wants to do in our lives. No battle or trial might be too big for him to overcome, but as we see earlier in Exodus, God isn't interested in the strongest, shiniest version of ourselves that we've got it all put together. He's much more interested in the obedient servant who's seeking to follow through on what the Lord would have us accomplish for his name. So often myself included, We can be weighed down by the shame of our sin and going back to these empty wells time and time again. Our actions even our habitual failures. But the difference between us and Pharaoh, we have access to the Holy Spirit in our lives. He convicts us, prods us to righteousness and obedience in the Lord. So here's a question I want to ask you today. These are rhetorical, but What areas are you hardened to the work of the Lord in your life? What areas have you not surrendered fully to the Lord? Are you living in obedience? Or are you still entertaining this control of your own life? If we're honest with ourselves, I'd expect that the Lord wants to reveal some things in our own heart that he wants to bring to the surface as we move forward and trust in him. Now, I want to allow some space for us to to seek the Lord this morning and ask these things before we respond and worship. So what may the Lord be showing you as you see yourself in the story? I want to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us where we need to trust and obey and where we need to go, let go of control and soften to his voice. So let's take some moments and seek the Lord. Lord, I pray this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would recognize how powerless we are without you. We need you, Lord. We need your greatness in our lives so we don't risk becoming a Pharaoh. We see such great mercy and grace in what Jesus has done for us, Lord, and we remember this morning that grace and what it means in our own life, the freedom from our sin for all of eternity In all of these things, I pray this morning, we as followers of Christ are encouraged and reminded that you reign above it all. I ask that you would draw us closer to you into a life of more obedience as you call us to be your people in a world that needs to see hope and the love that you provide. We pray all this in your name, Lord, speak to us.